Good morning. What a rather dodgy looking Goliath that was, wasn't it? Well, we're in our series uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and um, we're in the penultimate study today. Uh, Study 11, we're going to be concluding the uh, series next week. But Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Although Paul doesn't use the word Christian, in fact, he refers to uh, Christians as those who are in Christ or those who are in him throughout his letter. And in this letter, Paul writes about the, the new life that we have received in Christ. And then he speaks about the new society to which those who have received new life in Christ will belong. That is the church. And then he speaks of the new standards of this new society. And then finally, the new relationships that he has brought us into. And the focus on the talk that Dan gave last week and today is these new relationships that we have because of the new life that Christ has given us. Now, because um, the letter to Ephesians is uh, an ancient document written in the mid-first century AD, we need to place ourselves in that society and in that culture and in their times so that we can truly understand what this might mean for us today. And if we fail to take the historical context, um, then what happens is that we can come out, potentially at least, with some very, very strange ideas Um, and um, we certainly don't want to do that. Enough of those have been uh, brought about over the last 2,000 years, and I'll talk maybe about some of them a little later on. Becoming a follower of Jesus, everything changes. Uh, Our relationships change especially, and um, the relationships of husbands, wives, parents, children, Employers, employees, neighbours, and our relationships in our wider communities all changes. Dan, in his talk last week, um, said that the the first century Greek or Roman household looked a little bit different to many households today. Today, a typical household will be perhaps a father, a mother, 2.2 children, um, a cat, a dog, a rabbit, a goldfish. Um, Maybe... That uh, family will be extended with a grandparent or two. Sometimes you will have single-parent families, sometimes families where there are two mums or two dads. There are many kinds of families, but the typical household in ancient Greece would have included parents, children, and also slaves. And Paul here, in his uh, writing towards the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, He is telling us what these relationships would have been like between wives and husbands, between children and parents, and between uh, masters and slaves. The key verse um, for us getting our heads all around this is chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's the the guiding principle to relationships within God's new society, the church. Whether it's between husbands and wives, between parents and children, or between masters and slaves. And this mutual submission that Paul speaks about and love for one another 
was absolutely revolutionary in Paul's days. I was reading this week uh, a great quote from Professor William Barclay, who was a commentator on the Bible, a very brilliant man who really does get inside what life was like in the, the first century there in the Middle East. And, and this is what William Barclay writes. The Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning would give thanks to God that God had not made him a gentle, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possessions to do with as he willed. The position was even worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home, to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct, and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome, in Paul's day, it was worse still. Now, last week, Dan, in his talk to us, introduced a word that some of you might not have come across before. It's uh, the word patriarchy. Patriarchy is a system where men hold all the power and women are largely excluded. And when we read these passages in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, we need to remember that patriarchy was the prevailing culture within the day. And when we understand a little bit more about this historical context behind uh, Paul's writings, we will then see Paul not as the misogynist that is often claimed that he is, but we will rather see him as a radical revolutionary who is challenging the patriarchy of his day, and he is um, bringing in values of God's kingdom. He's not submitting to patriarchy, rather he's subverting it. He's challenging it and providing a new way, God's kingdom way. Dan uh, gave us an excellent talk last week and uh, he helped us to see that um, Paul's challenge to Christians' husbands was to love their wives as Christ loved the church and not to view those um, wives as worthless or inferior or worse still, as, as property, because that was the, what was being done in the ancient world in Paul's day. And this was hugely, hugely radical. I know that many forests have been felled over the years to provide enough paper um, for all that's been written on Paul's words about women submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives. But I think that all that we need to do, ask, to, to do is to ask ourselves... What does it mean to, to submit and what does it mean to love? To submit means to willingly give oneself up to another. To love means to willingly give oneself up to another. As Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. So to love and to submit are two sides of the, very, of, of the same coin. They're virtually synonyms in this context. 
which is exactly the point that Paul makes in verse 21 of chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I don't want to go over where Dan was last week. That was a great talk that he gave us. If you missed it, then I do encourage you to please catch up online. This morning, I would like us to move on. The subject's the same. We are moving from chapter 5 into chapter 6. And uh, Paul, first of all, writes about the relationship of parents, Christian parents, and their children. So if you have your Bibles there, turn to um, Ephesians chapter 6. I'm reading from the New International Version. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, we know that children are a wonderful blessing, and, and it's a tremendous responsibility for those of you who are parents and grandparents. Um, and yet, I would say that in the first century, in the Roman Empire, children were often treated callously with terrible cruelty. Unwanted babies were abandoned. Deformed babies were killed. And on occasions, even healthy babies were exposed, which means they were put out for the wolves. And against this stark, cruel background, the gospel gave women, children, and slaves a real sense of worth. It was Jesus who treated women with courtesy and honor in an age when they were despised. It was Jesus who said, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In a period in history when they were, could have been consigned to the local rubbish dump. It was Jesus who taught the dignity of servanthood. When he took off his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, got a basin, and then went and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. Showing that he himself was one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul writes, obey your parents in the Lord. And wherever you go, whatever civilization in the world you visit, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, the recognition of parental authority is normally an essential part of stable society. And let me just say this morning that it is far, far easier for children to obey parents who are leading by example. <clears throat> you know, it then becomes a matter of do what I do rather than do what I say. And do what I do is a far better message altogether. It's a far more powerful message. And in the context here of patriarchy, a Roman farmer, father had absolute power over his family. He could sell his children off as slaves. He could get them just working in the fields. He, the children had no legal rights whatsoever. However, Paul says that the Christian father was to be totally different. In this section, you'll notice that uh, Paul only addresses fathers, not both parents, because... It was essentially fathers who needed to hear Paul's revolutionary teaching uh, in their male-dominated households. 
And Paul here gives both a positive and a negative command. Negatively, he says to the fathers, do not exasperate your children. In other words, don't make unreasonable or irritating demands upon them. You know, they're immature. They don't have experience. Make allowances for that. Do not treat them harshly or with cruelty. Do not humiliate them or suppress them. Don't prevent them to resentment or anger. So that's the negative side. But then there's a positive, And he says, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And I think that that's an incredible responsibility that Christian parents have for their children. The scriptures teach us in Proverbs 22 that we are to train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. The Roman Catholic Church boasts that if they have a child for the first seven years, then they have a Roman Catholic for life. For me, well, it's been the best part of four decades. Uh, I've been a parent, and I've still got my L plates on. Um, we saw our David, who was our firstborn, yesterday, and he's uh, uh, having his 39th birthday this week. How old must I be? And probably, you know, as I look back, truthfully, I probably need to apologize to David and to Sean and to Andrew for those times when I didn't get the balance quite right. That imbalance of encouragement and prayer and teaching and example and discipline. And uh, I'm sure that we've all been there. You who are parents of young children, can I encourage you? Please do not leave the education of your children to what they see on the television alone. You know, whether it's on uh, uh, Emmerdale or Corrie or EastEnders, if you let them watch those programs, or just from what they learn at school with their teachers, and I'm sure the teachers are doing a wonderful job, or even what they are learning in Kids Zone. And I think we've got an absolutely wonderful children's team in this church. But I encourage you, Start that work at home. Fan into flame their spiritual lives at an early age from home. And I think probably we all say, oh Lord, we so need your wisdom in these things. The next relationship that uh, Paul deals with here in this passage in verse 5 is that of slaves and masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, slavery was a, a universal thing in the ancient world. It was an established part of the economy and society as a whole. It's been estimated that in the Roman Empire in those days, there were around about 60 million slaves. And they weren't just uh, domestic servants or manual laborers, 
but some of them were doctors and teachers and pastors, people who were qualified in many other skills. But that's the way that life was back then. Slaves could be inherited or purchased. You could become a a slave because you were a prisoner of war. And um, that happened often in the ancient world. And the, the Roman state left the problem of discipline to their owners. There was no legislation. And the owners of slaves even had the right of execution of those same slaves. And many of them were treated badly, terribly actually. And some were even crucified. And you can read the history books to tell you all about this. And it's a terrible story indeed. But when it comes to the New Testament, and this might surprise you, the New Testament neither condemns nor condones the practice of slavery. Now you might find that, as I say, really, really surprising. Some of you would have thought that Paul would have, should have, taken the opportunity to address the evils of slavery. For Paul to have been a voice for the voiceless, for Paul to have been that voice and a a conscience to the nation, declaring slavery as a terrible evil, that no person had the right to own another person. You would think that, but Paul doesn't speak against it. Neither, would I quickly add, does he speak in favour of it. And there may be the reason for that, is that in those days that slavery was such an accepted part of the world in which they lived, it was almost pointless. He, was, he didn't have that kind of power to speak against it. It would almost be like saying to the tide, stop. It would be like someone saying today, telling Amazon to stop trading because they are taking business away from the local shopkeeper. You see, Paul, unlike us, He wasn't living in a democracy. He had no authority or avenue to speak against it. He couldn't make an appointment with his local MP and suggest that uh, the MP bring a private member's bill before Parliament to prohibit slavery. Paul didn't have that kind of authority. It wasn't a democracy as we live in today. However, where Paul did have an authority and an influence was in the church. And in his letter, he challenges the patriarchy of the day by instructing slave owners not to threaten or mistreat slaves. Reminding them both that they have a master in heaven who they will give account to. And Paul also instructs the slaves to respect their earthly leaders just as they would obey Christ and he challenges them to obey not only when their master's eyes are on them. Now given the status of slaves in ancient society it's quite an amazing thing it's quite remarkable actually that Paul should address slaves at all but he did so and the reason he did so is because they were an important part of the Christian community. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice that there. No hierarchy, no superiority, no pecking order, no chain of command. Equality 
in Christ. And that was the Christian message, and that remains the Christian message today. Just for a few moments, let's come back to verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with the sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now that is a verse with other verses too that has been misused and abused throughout time. In fact, it was one of the verses among others that, dare I say it, Bible-believing Christians in the 18th and 19th centuries used to support the slave trade. Wow. I did some research on this this week and I was really, really surprised to find that amongst the supporters of slavery, there were men who were largely household names, people like uh, George Whitfield. I was, I was utterly shocked at that. He, he had slaves himself. Now, George Whitfield was a great um, revivalist, great evangelist in both UK and the States, a very close friend of John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism. John Wesley was diametrically opposed to Whitfield on this. In fact, he said of slavery, this is John Wesley saying, saying of slavery, that it was the son of all villainies. And I thank God for other Bible-believing Christians who saw things quite differently. Men like William Wilberforce, Anglican Member of Parliament, who persevered year after year after year in Parliament to bring about an end to the slave trade. From, from rather, not 1970, from 1791, a bill was presented almost every year in Parliament to abolish the slave trade. He was outvoted 11 times, and once by just 17 votes. In 1807, the, houses of, the House of Commons, rather, finally passed a bill to abolish the slave trade by uh, 253 votes to just 16. The slave trade was abolished in the UK, but there were other battles to be won, battles in the, the British colonies. And after more political battles, that victory was achieved in the year 1833. And it was agreed that the slave owners be offered compensation of £20 million sterling for their loss. The good news was conveyed to William Wilberforce, who was on his deathbed. And he said, Thank God that I should have lived to witness a day in which England is willing to give £20 million sterling for the abolition of slavery. He died just four days later. Now, sorry about this. I know I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent there. But I think that the story of William Wilberforce is one of the most inspiring, most wonderful stories. And he is one of the great heroes of me and I know of many people here today. But I started by saying that so many of those slave traders justify their slave trading by what they believed the Bible to be saying. I believe that they misinterpreted the Bible by doing that thing I keep telling you not to do. They took a text out of context 
And when you take a text out of context, all you're left with is a con. I know you've heard that one before. But rather than seeing Paul as the great liberator, these 18th century Bible-believing slave traders saw Paul as a supporter of slavery. Now we need to remember that Paul was a first century Jew, a child of his day. And he, he spoke in a particular historical context. And also, as I said last week, it's always so important that we, when we come to the Bible, that we ask not what the Bible means to us today, but we ask a question before that. And the question before that is, what did the, what did the Bible mean in those days to the original recipients, to those that the Bible was written? Because the Bible might have been written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And it's so important to understand that. And maybe that's a problem to these 18th and 19th century slave traders, that they took verses totally out of context and came out with something altogether ugly and terrible for society and the world. Guys, would you like to come back, please, as I just uh, come into land for, in a few moments' time? At the beginning of my talk this morning, I started by using that key verse in chapter 5, verse 21. And I said that that key verse is the key verse which unlocks the passage that we've been studying last week and this week, where Paul relates to the relationships of husbands and wives, parents and children, and to masters and slaves. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I would suggest this morning that this is the main thing. That although our world might be very, very different to the world in which Paul lived in 2,000 years ago, the history might be different. We might not have slavery in our country as we um, once did. We might not be living under this idea, this regime of patriarchy. But the principle that is found in that one verse of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is that one teaching which is transgenerational and transcultural. In other words, followers of Jesus, as we are, need to use that as our verse of and our principle, our guiding principle, as we reach out to others in our relationships, whatever those relationships might be, that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As followers of Jesus, in other words, we are called to be servant-hearted. That's what this is all about. Servant-hearted disciples of Christ. Paul gives this so well in Philippians chapter 2. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, or the same attitude, some translations. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So in all of our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how are we in 2021 in Tamworth to live as followers of Jesus? Well, the answer is there, that we are to live in all of our relationships in voluntary submission to others, whether it's husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, amongst our friends and amongst our neighbours. And in all of those relationships, we need to remember that it is Christ that we are serving. I've asked the guys this morning to sing a, with us a, a song that is a very, very old song. We don't sing it very often. But the chorus of this song tells us that this is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to our servant king. And he is the one who is the servant king, the one who submitted himself, the servant-hearted one that we follow today as Christians down through the ages have followed. Would you stand with me, please, and let us just open our hearts to the words of this great song as we conclude our service in a few moments' time.